Amen. I love Jesus this morning. Anybody else in the room feel the same? So glad to be here with you today. It's a wonderful time in the presence of God in our worship. Uh, just so thankful for these great musicians and their flexibility. I uh, just want to give God praise for all of them today. As we begin, if you would, you know how our drill. Let's stand together. We have two verses of Scripture, very short. Our typical series text, which we will share each Sunday, so that, with a view that, by the end of this, you will really be familiar with Romans 12.2. And then our next one will be found in Revelation 4.11, which is commonly called the doxology, or giving glory to God. So this morning, let's look together, find a screen, let's read out loud. Here we go. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is about our minds, our thinking. Next one is Revelation chapter 4. Read with me. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's find a place of prayer. Bow your hearts with me. Gracious God, we come before you this morning. We thank you that you are creator of heaven and earth. You are creator of all mankind, every living thing. You've opened your hand and satisfied the desire of every living thing. We acknowledge this morning that you are God and we are not. We ask you to help us. Move in this service, Holy Spirit, and do what only you can do. Lord, as I weekly say before the people, I can't do anything apart from you. You move and do and teach, Holy Spirit. It is, it is your job, your job description, to lead us into all truth, to guide us, to comfort us in Jesus' name. And Lord, it's with our prayer that we are deliberate today to ask you to open our ears and our eyes. Father, we'll just be careful to give you all the glory because, it is, because it's by your will that we exist and that we were created. And we give you praise in Jesus' name and all of God's people said. Amen. You may, you may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. We started this series last Sunday with a message called Loving God with All Our Minds. We gave you a quick understanding of what a worldview is. And I want to give you about a 60-second review. Number one, a worldview is a particular philosophy of life or a conception of the world. We went in great lengths to define it, to help you understand that it's a mindset. It is a mentality. It's a set of overarching ideas. They're not just random thoughts, but it's a set of overarching ideas that govern the rest of life. We put them on like a lens. We are able to see and perceive reality through our worldview. We learned that the Bible instructs us to be not conformed to this world, as in our text, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we can be able to discern, to be able to make a judgment call on what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect according to His singular will. Second text last Sunday was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've all come from various denominational Christian heritages and perspectives. There may be some people in, the morning, in this room this morning who do not have a church background, and that's fine too. As a matter of fact, sometimes uh, there, is a, there is a benefit to that because we don't have to unlearn some things. Because every denomination, every heritage comes with a great deal of wonderful stuff but there's usually one or two things that every one of them can be adjusted a little bit more toward a biblically centered position. 
And so with that today, I just uh, want to share with you a quote uh, that is from Charles Malick, if they'll put that on the screen this morning. In part of our review, it says, The problem is not only to win souls, but to save minds. If you win the whole world and lose the mind of the world, you will soon discover that you have not won the world. The point that we drove home so heartily last Sunday was that you can be a blood-bought Christian. You can be a believer, firmly planted in the courts of our God, flourishing in the house of God, uh, but you can be so marinated in the current sort of the worldview du jour, sort of the worldview of the day. Like you, you go to lunch today and maybe see the soup du jour, the soup of the day. Well, the worldview or the particular prevailing thoughts, the mentality du jour of the day has a lot to do with consumerism. You know, people shop, shop for churches the way they do hamburgers. You have McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's and and Hueys, and oh my goodness, Midtown's about to get a five guys. Somebody say hallelujah. Um, uh, although I'll just tell you, it'll be a hard run for either of those. The five guys is amazing, so is Hueys. Uh, but many times we shop for churches the way we do hamburgers, and we're sort of looking for a place that is, you know, really pleases us to the nth degree instead of really seeking the face of God and getting the wisdom of God on what will best help us to grow into what God has called us to be. Say amen, somebody. Um, consumerism, materialism, man, we are judged by our socioeconomic status, by our educational level, by the labels on the clothes inside or out, the kind of car we drive, how many garages you have on your house, the, the address that you live at. All of those things are very materialistic in the dollars and signs sense, so to speak. Um, in the middle of that, we have a whole host of other things. Relativism that we talked about last week where there is no longer any truth with a capital T, but it's just basically everybody's own individual truth and don't, don't press yours on me. I won't press you on mine on yours. Um, we talked a little bit about some presuppositions and I want to carry on with that uh, today as we uh, pick up in number two with this series. By the way, I just want to stop and reiterate the importance of uh, of jumping in here Saturday. Free Continental Breakfast at 9.30. Chip Bueller has been to Victory several times. Great, great friend of mine. One of our presbyters, meaning that he has some oversight over me and over this congregation in terms of being wisdom and helping us from an apostolic standpoint. And I use that in the little a sense, not like the apostles Paul and Peter, but little a apostolic in terms of oversight. So grab that card and fill that out. It's free uh, Saturday morning. 9.30 starts Continental Breakfast. The actual seminar starts at 10 a.m. It'll be two hours. Child care is provided, and Chip is going to dig into this with some depth that I cannot do on a Sunday-by-Sunday -Sunday basis, and it's going to be phenomenal. He's already emailed me all of his handouts, and they are excellent, and I really encourage you to be here free. So look at your neighbor and say, I hope you'll be there. All right. Uh, today, as we begin, I want to begin and talk a little bit about presuppositions. This is the idea of assumptions. We presuppose some things. Every one of you have come into this room with some presuppositions about God. And I have two chairs that are marked up here on the platform. I'm going to push this back a little bit so that no one is really blocked in their front and center. And you can see that we're dealing with a couple of different worldviews here. With both of these chairs, as we sit down in them, they come with a set of glasses. They come with a set of lenses which we view the world. Typically, 
every one of you are in here on Sunday mornings and you're sitting in this chair. You're sitting in a chair where you recognize that the world does not stop with material things or natural causes, but you recognize that above what is seen in the natural world is this whole spiritual world of the supernatural. You recognize, as the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So you, you sit in this chair on Sunday and you worship God as creator and as heavenly Father. And you hear the word and you, you understand the bigness and the grandeur of God's majesty and his sovereignty and that you were made for a purpose. But after Sundays are over and you're excited and you're, you're lifted and you're charged and you've been strengthened, Sunday night you sit with your family and hopefully you have some point of discussion, not just on Sunday night but during the week and you, you, you're able to enter into some conversation with your children about what it means to walk with God and love God. But many times Monday morning we have exited that chair and we've made a choice to sit down in this one in the chair of naturalism. It is a chair that has a worldview that comes along with it. And with the worldview of naturalism comes a set of glasses that we put on. And, and like a good set of work glasses, they are there for the purpose of keeping things out. These are my personal work glasses. When I cut the grass, particularly, especially, maybe not when I'm mowing, but especially when I'm weed eating, I have on a set of work glasses that are safety goggles and because that so, many, so much of the time is out in the full sunshine, I try to protect my eyesight. Uh, macular degeneration is, runs in our family. My grandfather had it. My Aunt Lucille had it before she passed a, a few years back. And so I'm always checking on that when I go to the eye doctor, to the optometrist, ophthalmologist, to see how things are going. And the biggest thing that he says you can do is make sure that you have a really good set of not just you know Walmart $5 glasses, but get you a good pair of glasses that really do block out a harmful UV rays because that's been proven scientifically to be the primary contributor to macular degeneration. So when you buy a good set of glasses, it excludes, it filters out, it blocks out those harmful UV rays. In the very same way that that does that for the sake of protection for me, when I sit down in the chair of naturalism and I observe the worldview, the set of prevailing thoughts, the mentality, the mindset, the philosophy of life, the particular conception of the world, and I do this in my 40 plus hours a week, Monday through Friday, sitting from a place of naturalism, then I, I'm automatically, because I'm working at a job that tells me uh, that because of the difference in these two, this automatically precludes the possibility of the existence of anything super. It excludes the idea of the possibility of a God being involved in terms of any kind of intelligent design or architecture. Now, when I embrace this, and by the way, this is the worldview du jour. It is the worldview of the day. Higher education is gripped in this and has been for the last hundred years. We'll go so far as to say the last 150. It's actually redefined science 
During the scientific revolution, which was from 1500 when Copernicus was born through 1700, and we hear the names of Kepler and Copernicus and Galileo and Sir Isaac Newton, let me just tell you something. The overwhelming majority of those were God-fearing, God-loving Christian men who thought that science's purpose was for discovering the grandeur of God's glory. That was what science was for in the first place. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton, who discovered and defined for us the law of gravity and gave us calculus and gave us the laws of thermodynamics, he gave us Newtonian physics, also wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. I bet you've never been taught that in your secular schools, have you? Sir Isaac Newton was a devout Christian who loved Jesus Christ. I could stop and give you testimonies of the various scientists during the scientific revolution who all believed in a supernaturalist worldview that science was given for the purpose of being able to ask questions to identify the greatness and to give significance to the glory of God. But the last 150 years, particularly since we've had the advent of Darwinianism, or Darwinism, Science has redefined, has been redefined by this worldview of naturalism, that it basically puts on a set of filters and filters out the possibility of anything that might have to do with the possibility of a supernatural, supreme being, intelligent designer, artisan, God, whatever you might want to call it. And so what's going on in this particular situation is this automatically puts us in a false dichotomy. Because on Sunday mornings we come over here and we open the Bible, which in most places has been reduced to a devotional book about spiritual things only. And we open it only on Sunday morning and we sit down in the supernaturalist chair and we worship and revere and honor God. But then Monday morning we get up and we go to work and we put on the resident set of glasses that correspond to this chair that we must work in and live and move and have our being in 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. And it separates the sacred on Sunday and the secular the other six days of the week. And we compartmentalize ourselves. And because of this false dichotomy, it tells us that the sacred and the secular can never mix. And this is the private sphere of faith. This is the public sphere of facts. And we are never to let the twain mix. This is what you do at work. They might let you actually put a nice little Jesus plaque up on one of the walls of your cubicle, but whatever you do, don't talk about it. Don't don't want to hear the name Jesus at work because that belongs in the sacred area, in the private sphere of faith. And we are over here 60 hours a week dealing in the naturalism sphere, the secular, the public sphere of facts. Because science cannot speak to. It's not that science can't speak to, but it refuses any longer to speak to anything regarding the supernatural because it has put on a set of lenses that filters out anything that would have to do with the possibility of a creator God. Now, let me give you again the illustration that I shared last Sunday because it will even become clearer this morning. We have two worldviews here. Naturalism Supernaturalism. Everything that is in this, this one contains and then some. This one can recognize the natural causes that this one brings to bear, but this one can recognize there are also other things behind the scenes in terms of a whole spiritual dimension that is being activated. 
This one, when you die and the breath leaves your body, all is seen is a breathing human being that's no longer breathing. This one says, you know what? That thing that's lying there is just a carcass. Who that person really was, the living soul, this worldview says, you know what? That whole system right there uh, of flesh and bone and muscle and nerves and digestion and all those abilities have quit working because who was in that house has left the house. Elvis has left the building, baby. Now, this one refuses to acknowledge that, the existence of a soul, the possibility of anything, any kind of afterlife, because it precludes that. Now, you walk the beach and you enjoy the beauty, the sound of the seagulls, the roar of the ocean waves, the tide comes in, the tide goes out. You see the patterns and the rivulets of the tide as it comes in and etches its marks and then it leaves when it leaves, then there are all of those nice little seashells that you can pick up if you're out there early enough in the morning before the scavengers all hit. But you know what? As you're walking along in your morning beach private meditation time and you're loving the creation of God and you're thinking about how amazing nature is and you're, you're looking at what the winds and the waves and the water and erosion can do to the beach and creating interesting looking patterns, you walk up on this big magnificent sandcastle and you don't stop and say... You don't put on these glasses that preclude the possibility of some kind of design and you look at that and go, wow, isn't that amazing what the tide and the wind did last night? You look at this huge demonstration of a team of people who came in and built a castle with all of these towers and little um, spinnerets or minarets or whatever they're called. I forget all of these different little kinds of twists and twirls and a drawbridge and everything. And you recognize that somebody there was involved. That sand didn't just randomly jump into that shape. The wind didn't do it. The tide didn't do it. The waves didn't do it. My other part of the illustration is that no one drives through the Black Hills of South Dakota and observes over there on the mountain the four faces of four deceased presidents, four famous presidents, and you don't drive away in awe and wonder going, look what millions of years of wind and rain and erosion have done to the side of that mountain. It doesn't happen. You have this thing called common sense. You know that that cannot possibly happen randomly. Who was it? Fred Hoyle who talked about the mathematical possibility of you being on the planet and evolving from a single cell organism is about the likelihood of a tornado blowing through a junkyard and on the other side having a fully put together and functioning 747 jet. It's beyond ridiculous, and it takes a greater step of faith to believe that is a possibility than to step back in with common sense and look and see, look what God, from a supernatural worldview, look what God has done. Now, I want you to understand this from these two chairs, chair of naturalism, chair of supernaturalism. Both of them comes with an attendant set of glasses that you have to put on. When I put this one on, it absolutely opens up my ability. Whoa, man, I'm going to tell you, what I have on my contacts this morning, and this is a set of glasses prescribed for me too, and so, man, that's like a trip right there. Well, so I got to put that one back down. But you see the illustration. Now, look with me. These two presuppositionalist chairs, you presuppose by presupposing and filtering out the idea of any possibility of God being involved, you automatically determine that you're going to ignore the possibility of what clear truth and evidence that might be right in your face is saying. Listen, this is what happens in Romans chapter 1. Look with me to verses 18. We find a screen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, look at it, it's in bold. 
Read it with me. Suppress the truth. What do we do when we sit down in this chair? We filter out. We suppress the truth. We are refusing to acknowledge what is self-evident. The founders of our nation talked about self-evident truths. They talked about God giving us unalienable, inalienable rights. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created. Now these are founders. These are the people who laid the groundwork for our nation. They were acknowledging a creator God. Okay? Now the unrighteous men, the God-haters, try to suppress the truth. Go on. Verse 19. For what can be known. Everybody say, can be known. Let's just, let's just dissect this. Look at this. For what can be known about God is what? Plain to them. In other words, it's out here. But I put on a set of glasses to suppress it. What can be known about God is plain to them because God is what? Shown it to them. Okay, great. You're a little bit preachy. Let's dial it back. Jump to the next verse. Click. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been what? Clearly perceived. Yeah, it's there if you don't put on uh, beta blockers. Yeah, I mean, it's there if you don't suppress it and try to keep from seeing it. For his divine invisible attributes and his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Where? How? In the things that have been made. And get the last line. Read it with me. So they are without excuse. No one has the excuse to say, well, I never sat in a church and heard the gospel preached because the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. We are sitting before a literal Mount Rushmore and we are doing, when we put on a naturalistic set of glasses and we sit in the naturalism chair, we are walking away trying to have awe and wonder and going stupidly Look what erosion and wind and rain have done to the side of that mountain for millions of years. And everybody just wants to go, you're an idiot. <laughs> this is what the last 150 years have attempted to do to science, which began for the purpose of bringing about the knowledge of the glory of God. But it's a determination from a Darwinian mindset, and that is being transferred into every area of life. They're trying to make it a complete, consistent worldview in every regard whatsoever. Darwinianism is being transferred and applied to law. It's being transferred to education. It's being transferred to the arts and literature and music and in every way possible. We as Christians, the reason that I'm going through this series is not to teach you how to argue with an atheist. That is not what my point is. I want to teach you how to live in the world and have the grace and the blessing of God on you because you're not living pigeonholed, compartmentalized, doing this on Sunday and then doing this five days a week. And you sit down with your children and you, if you've chosen to use the public school system, you talk to them and retrain them and you help them unlearn what is being shoved down their throats with situational ethics, with ethical relativism, with hedonism, with scientific materialism, and all of these isms that want to do everything they can to destroy any kind of concept of supernaturalism, which is a biblical worldview. Are you following me this morning? Now, as we're into this, we've talked about the two chairs. We've talked about the false dichotomy of faith and facts. 
We talked about the false dichotomy of private and public, of sacred and secular, because in all of life, God is united. He's wanting to bring us together. Did you know that education actually began as a, an impetus driven by the church? The whole liberal arts approach came out of the medieval church in an attempt to try to educate people to the glory of God. Uh, I, I want you to understand that when we first developed the concept of a university 600 years ago, it was an attempt to unify knowledge to take the word unity and diversity and bring them together. And a university for the first 400 years after its creation was a place where everything diverse in the, the base of knowledge in the world could be brought into a place of unity into one consistent worldview. University, unity, diversity. You go to the university campus these days and you are plagued with the separation of all of these things because you're trying to make a worldview work, and no other worldview will work consistently except that of a Bible worldview, of Christianity. I will not apologize for that. Marxism does not work. Relativism, pragmatism by C.S. Pierce and Oliver Wendell Holmes, who basically says, I don't care what you think about the law, so long as we've got the majority ruling, I don't care if it sends us to hell. That is an Oliver Wendell Holmes Quote, 1932, Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Darwinian thought had gripped him, and the whole state of our courts began to change in terms of legislating from the bench. And it took a generation, 40 years later, before we had the birth of Roe v. Wade, where we completely justified the slaughtering now of over 55 million babies. Forgive me for going political, but that has happened because of a wrong worldview. The church doesn't have a voting problem. The church has a worldview problem. If you can get your worldview straight, we will call our leaders to accountability, and we will vote differently, and we will spend our money differently, and we will demand that those that are in positions of leadership, local, state, and federal, will begin to come in line with what clearly for 200 years of our nation's history was just clearly called common sense. Don't shout me down. I'm telling you something this morning. We have four things that I want to share with you very quickly. If you would put up the slide on a biblical worldview has these components. We're going to talk about four things. Before we do, I want you to read with me these four, four lines in this one long sentence. The Bible never sets out to prove the existence of God. It presupposes you're knowing that. It starts in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. You know, want to know why? Because it expects you to do what I just read to you in Romans chapter 1. It's clearly perceived. It's plain because God has shown it. We don't in unrighteousness suppress the truth or determine that we're going to put on a set of glasses that filters out the possibility of the involvement or even before that the existence of a God. Clearly, the Bible tells us that we are without excuse because the, all of the creation reveals to us through things that are made the invisible attributes, the eternal power, the divine nature of God is revealed in all of this amazing handiwork of the Lord and all the species and all of creation, everything that lives and breathes and moves is the handiwork of God. We, as Christians, need to have four components built into us. These are part of a critical understanding of a biblical worldview. Number one, here we go, an understanding of creation. It asks the question, how did we get here? You're going to see four questions after every one of these points this morning. One question over each of the four, I'm sorry. Four in total. <coughs> every worldview attempts to answer these. 
Marxism will attempt to answer what is the problem with the world. We'll get to that and talk about it in just a moment. A Bible worldview understands that we are created. How did we get here? Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. You have two elements that are at work here. God speaks, but before he speaks, you have the preparation of the moving or the hovering of the Spirit. Two elements are involved in creation. Those same two elements are involved in recreation, when God takes you from spiritual death and births you into newness of life. The Spirit of God draws you, and then you hear the gospel word that is proclaimed. Into your darkness you hear, let there be light. Out of that word, faith comes. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The Spirit has drawn you. The word has called it forth and said, light be out of your darkness. And guess what? God saves you. You are rebirthed into the kingdom of God. He creates you by the Spirit and by the word. He recreates you by the Spirit and by the word. These are the same two things we talked about last Sunday in John chapter 4. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth is just another way of saying the word, the spoken word of God, which is the Bible. Okay, So you see those things going on here. Now, let me just say this. There are a number of different ways that we can interpret Genesis 1 and 2. And, and my focus in this series is not to actually gear all the way down into the finer, extremely fine points of whether you believe in a young earth or whether you believe in an old earth or whether you look at the days of creation, the six days, Hebrew word yom, as an actual age. Because there are brothers in every one of those camps, sisters in those. Um, I just want it to be understood that whether you embrace any one of those, that you understand the general principle that God is creator. We affirm the Apostles' Creed at victory. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. A newer version of the, the Apostles' Creed says creator of heaven and earth. We begin from that standpoint. How did we get here? We didn't just evolve. It's not just random chance and processes that begin from the stuff that was here. We have a problem with that because how did the stuff get here in the first place? If there was a big bang, then what brought the materials and the right situation for the big bang to happen? I believe there was a big bang. I just believe it, brought a, it means there's a big banger. Sure. I mean, however you want to scientifically characterize God said, let there be light, boom. And we have this cosmological event. And the, the scripture tells us that out of nothing God created. It's the, the, the phrase ex nihilo. Literally, it would be out of his own word, his own character, his own, by his spoken word. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. It was by divine fiat that God spoke and creation came to be. Amen? We have another beginning that we look at. John chapter 1, the apostle John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. 114, a few verses later, says, And the Word, capital W, was made flesh, and He dwelt among us. This is the incarnation of Christ. Jesus is the Word of God. He's the spoken expression of God who is the thinker. God the Father thought, and when He spoke, the Son took over the creative process, and the Son spoke it into being. Colossians says it's by Jesus that all things consist 
or are held together in the universe. It's by his divine power and his sovereignty that everything moves and operates. A blade of grass maintains. Let me just tell you something right now. Science couldn't even operate the first 150 years except that it had already identified that there is an ordered universe based on laws that do not change. But yet Darwinism teaches us that everything is completely random. And there is no such truth because it can't be trusted. Science wouldn't even have come into being had they not began with a biblical, God-centered principle that said the whole universe is ordered and that the, the planets, as they begin to discover, are, are governed by a certain way in a rotation so many miles from the sun. Did you know it's so phenomenally amazing that if the axis on which the earth rests and rotates and spins, if it were a half degree, I said a degree in the last uh, 9 o'clock service, but actually just a half degree either way. If it tilted the other direction a half degree, we would freeze to death. If it tilted a half degree in the opposite direction, we would burn up. The phenomenal intricacy and the complexity of the design of this thing is that God made this thing specifically for the kind of life that exists on this planet. You could not exist anywhere else. That's why when you go to the moon, you have to have a moon suit because the atmosphere is not correlated to how you are geared to breathe and live and move and have your being. That's just one of a phenomenal number of things that sometimes scientists refer to as random coincidences. Now, you go to college, you raise your children, you sit down with them and you teach them to pray and believe in a supernatural God and most of the time by the second year of their college career, their faith is literally a waste howling wilderness. It's a wasteland because the scientific challenges and the humanities, the study of sociology and psychology usually takes such a hard blow at that with people that are not prepared understanding that every one of those have deliberately put on a set of glasses and they're operating from a philosophical naturalism. They're operating from this determined worldview that the last 150 years has redefined what science was. It used to be for the purpose of delivering the glory of God through knowledge, but now it completely filters out the possibility of anything supernatural. It precludes the idea that hasn't always been in history. It changed. About the time Charles Darwin came along and gave us the theory of natural selection. By the way, I encourage you to go home and Google that because if you really found out what the whole huge title of the book is, you would be offended because it ends in the phrase, uh, natural selection among the favored races. Darwin was a racist. He wanted to prove why European white people were superior to all the rest of the races on the planet. And you won't hear that in your science classes because scientists don't want anything to do with the possibility of that. We start taking any kind of scientific discovery, and I say that with quotes, I say that unqualified, and we start moving it over into the social sciences. Social Darwinism then produced for us what happened in the Third Reich in Hitler's Germany, 1939 to 1945. It gave us the pseudoscience of eugenics. It gave them the determination of purging the world of natural Jews, kill six million Jews, and it justified it in the name of science at the time. I will take the unchanging word of God that hasn't changed in millennium any day over science that changes every two or five, ten years. Now, there's some things we don't need to argue with. It's obvious that radiocarbon dating, carbon-14 dating shows us that there are things that are millions of years old. That's the reason I'm telling you I don't have a problem with what takes place between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. 
God made this thing, and it could have been, quote, in our understanding, millions of years sitting here before Genesis 2 came into being, and he created the garden and put man in the place of it. I don't have a problem with that. That's called historical creationism. You can understand that science gives us some truth and some reality. I believe, not necessarily in my lifetime, but I believe in the days to come, years to come, generations to come, that we will see emerging back together again of science and Christianity where they have been set at odds against each other for the last 150 years. When you start to talk about the discoveries that are taking place the last three decades on a genetic level, it is boggling the minds of these who have determined to sit in this chair of naturalism and they're backing up and going, there is no possible way. When you just look at the complexity literally on a single cell level, you read a little bit. Some great books that I want to put in your hands in terms of recommendation. One is called The Case for a Creator. If you're interested in studying this a little bit deeper, I would encourage you to get that. As a Christian, we begin with creation. How did we get here? Now, we look around and we see that even though God said he made the world and he made it good, and when he finished, he backed up and he said, Behold, everything is very good. Well, something has happened since then because this place is in a mess. We've got trouble, we have disease, we have poverty, we have poverty, we have crime. We have injustice of all kinds. And so we have to ask the question, what's wrong with the world? How did we get in the mess that we're in? That is understood from Genesis chapter 3. You know the story. God gave the commandment, all of this multitude of species of trees, the animals of the field, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, anything you want to eat and partake of, anything you want to try out and do, exercise your dominion, Adam and Eve. Have a good time, enjoy it. But there's one in the middle of the garden. It was the tithe principle all the way back in the Garden of Eden. God said, everything is here is yours except that. That's mine. It's holy to the Lord. Leave it alone. In the same way that the tithe is holy to the Lord. That was the the garden tithe principle right there. God says, that's mine. You know what happened? I don't believe it was a red apple. I don't believe there was anything magical when they took the bite. I believe it was the sheer act of disobedience. Listening to the voice of an enemy, taking that in, letting their mind be renewed and immersed and marinated in that worldview of Satan, into his twisting of the word of God. You know what? You'll sit in classrooms and they will tell you the Bible is filled with contradictions and I just challenge you to ask them, well, just name one. Show me one. Please do. Uh, most of the time when I sit in a, a conversation with someone, never for the point of arguing, but they really are genuinely asking questions. Well, what about this? I've been told in my, my college science classes that this whole idea of creation, the Bible's full of contradictions. And I just say, well, did they give you one to come back and maybe ask about? Well, no, but they just told me it was. Okay, well, that's not going to do you any good, is it? Now, let me say this to you. You are responsible personally to dig in and study, to study to show yourself approved. Christians should never be second class in the classroom. You ought to be setting the curve. You ought to be making the A. Come on. Does it mean that you challenge the, the naturalist science professor or whatever, whether you're in the humanities, the arts or the sciences, doesn't mean you make an ass out of yourself. For, forgive me if that's too plain. It's a Bible word. You don't want to do that. You don't want to be a donkey in the classroom. You don't want to be preachy. But you want to excel, you want to do the very best you can for the glory of God. Somebody say amen. amen. All right, and then when you sit down with somebody who wants to ask you why you do still, in the face of all that, believe in Jesus, the Bible says in 1 Peter 3.15, set God apart in your heart, set the Lord apart, and be ready to give an answer to every man who asks you the reason of the hope that is in you, and do it with gentleness and respect. And you love people in the face of it. 
Now, I will sarcastically say idiot here, but I would never do that in a conversation with someone who is challenging or asking with a right heart. Are you hearing me? That's the way we do it. Fall. Listen now. What is wrong with the world? Romans chapter 5. Are you getting anything out of this? Man, I, I, got, to, I got to do it fast. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Adam sinned. He's the federal head of the human race, and therefore he passes this thing genetically into every one of us. You don't grow up and learn how to sin in your homes. You were born with the ability. You were born to know how. Listen, parents, those of you who've raised kids, you don't have to teach your little boys and girls how to lie. You wait till they're caught when they're about one, and you've already told them, don't, and then they try to pin it on their brother or their sister. They're born liars. And you back up and you go, I haven't ever lied in front of my child. How did he learn how to do that? How did she learn how to do that? Baby, they're born with the ability. We all want to cover our own backsides, okay? Now, so we have the fall, we have creation. This is where gospel preachers usually wrongly begin. They begin at the fall instead of beginning at creation. We recognize that there is a problem with the world, but we don't stop there. Number three, number three is redemption. Is there a way out of this mess and can it be fixed? In the middle of Genesis 3, when they sinned, God stopped. In the middle of giving a judicial curse on the sin of Adam and Eve and the serpent, and he stopped and he said, the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel. And it's what we call the protovangel. That there in a seed form, a seed kernel, is the promise of God sending a last Adam, a second Adam who will be the last Adam who's going to be Jesus Christ. So the seed is coming. Everybody say, the seed is coming. Now, let me read the rest of Romans chapter 5. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification, okay? So Adam does it one time, and it brings condemnation on everybody. Jesus offers his life as a sacrifice one time, and even after all of your many trespasses, that free gift still offers you justification before God, just as if you'd never sinned. You've been judicially declared acquitted before God. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more, everybody say much more, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I love that. The abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. That would preach another hour if I felt like you guys could take it and I would do it, but I'm not going to. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So we're talking about first Adam, last Adam. Okay? Verse 20, and I have two verses and I'm finished. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through Jesus Christ, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Creation, how did we get here? Fall, why are we in this mess? 
Redemption, God pulls us out of the pit. Is there a way out of this mess? Can it be fixed? Okay, then it brings us to my last point this morning. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Everybody say restoration. God is about the business of making all things new. The first thing that he made new was on the day of the resurrection, which we're going to celebrate in just a few weeks, the last Sunday of March. Jesus Christ was the beginning of the new creation of God. It was the start of God making all things new on the planet, recreating everything. Your number is in there somewhere. Okay? Restoration. Do I have a part to play? As I finish this this morning, Genesis 1.26 tells us this. We call this the cultural mandate. Everybody say that with me. The cultural mandate. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his image. He says, have dominion over everything that flies in the sky, that swims in the sea, that's all over the earth, everything around it. Take dominion, lead it, govern it, manage it, steward the creation. Okay? <clears throat> Verse 28, and God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful. Everybody say, be fruitful. Repeat these words after me. Multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. Listen to all that. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over. And he goes again. Fish of the sea, birds of the air, every living thing that he lists. So this is our call. We, we, we began and God said it's very good. We fell into sin because our father, our great, 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 and you keep on going a while, grandfather Adam led all of us into disobedience. But Jesus, the last Adam, has come, and he's redeemed us from the pit of destruction and sin. But it's not where we stop at just creation, fall, redemption. So now that we tie a knot in the end of the rope and hang on to the rapture, or that we just sort of wait until Jesus comes with sort of a hold-the-fort mentality, some people have reduced this down, boiled it to a reductionist view that the church is still only on the planet just for the purpose of a soul-saving mission. And though that is partially true, it begins there. New creation begins with the lives that are changed when God makes them new. But now we have the, the purpose, the charge, the call to see that our minds are renewed so that we take this idea of what God began with in Genesis and we push it out into every area of life, into economics, into medicine, into education, in, into business, into the culture around us with arts and sciences and literature and music and everything that we do that it is for the purpose of the glory of God. The cultural mandate, we see the word cultus, which means to worship. Adam was told by God to cultivate the earth, to create a place where the literal created order was a worship of God. Our culture around us is a demonstration, it's an expression of the whole collective worldview that people are living out of. And let me tell you, it is sad. It is a sick culture in which we live. And we're not here to paint placards and stand out anywhere and scream God hates anything. We are to live lives redemptively by creating great and glorious and wonderful things, by writing the best music, uh, by setting forth new ideas out there in, in the stories that we write in literature, in the way we teach and new methods that are able to help students succeed. Whatever we do, we do it stamped with the excellence of God on our lives and we conduct business ethically. 
Come on, somebody. Are you hearing me? Listen, this is the whole thing that is so grips the delta. We are in such a mediocrity and an indifference and an apathy. And we need some people to rise up in a spirit of excellence and throw off all of that mess. And say we will be the best and the most excellent that we can be to the glory of God. Not just in honest day-to-day business endeavors and not cheating people, but putting out the best product we possibly can. Then we go home at night and we sleep well because we go, I put that tire on today at Baskin's Tire Center and I tightened those bolts and I did it to the glory of God. And I fixed that car and I built that fence and I taught that student to the glory of God. And I, I, I treated that person down at the clinic and because I'm a nurse and I did it to the glory of God. God. I might have never had an opportunity to say the name of Jesus. But I gave that shot and I diagnosed that situation and I did it with Jesus in mind. I did it to his glory. And I promise if we'll start doing it with the right attitude and the right heart and just show up on time, it's amazing what Christians could actually do if we would think like that. To the glory of God. Come on, somebody help me this morning. Last one and I'm finished. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus took the cultural mandate of Genesis 1 and he restated it for us in the New Testament. This is the New Testament cultural mandate. Jesus came and said to them, all authority, everybody say dominion, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. God wants to help you think the thoughts of God after him. His thoughts are higher than ours. His ways are higher than ours. But the thinker thought, and he spoke, and the word, the Son. God the Father is the thinker. God the Son is the speaker, the word. And the Holy Spirit is the doer. And guess what the enemy wants to do? He wants to attack you in the image of God on the inside of you. Because you're made in his image. You are a thinker. You are a speaker. And you are a doer. And that's where he wants to cause you to sin. In your thought, in your word, and in your deeds. But Jesus Christ has come to redeem you from the curse of the law of sin and death. And to give you a vision and a hope. In a picture that the world doesn't have to stay in this state of poverty and war and strife and lack of peace. There's no way we can deal with the world if we can't make our own family work, drive out the strife and have peace in our hearts and in our individual hearts and in our homes. That can't happen in our homes until it happens in individual dads and moms and children's lives. Is Jesus Lord in here? We can't advance the kingdom out there until the kingdom comes in here. Come kingdom of God, be done will of God in earth as it is in heaven. So this morning, if you dim the lights, every head bowed, every eye closed, I just want to say this to you in our closing today and we're finished. Sit down with me in the supernaturalist chair and I dare you to stay there this week to look and to see the greatness of God in your life. Some of you are sitting here under the sound of my voice this morning and Maybe you've never grown up in church and some of this is very new to you and you sense something, don't know how to describe it, don't have words for it. You feel like there's a drawing of the Spirit of God, just sensed His presence in this place. Let me just tell you, that's the Spirit of the Lord wrapping His arms around you, showing you how much He loves you. The very same way that God created by two things, Spirit of the Lord brooding, Word of God speaking. Some of you, the Spirit of the Lord's been brooding over you this week 
brought you here this morning. Maybe you're a guest. You've never been to this church before. He's been brooding over you longer than that, and you've been sensing the drawing. In the car by yourself, a tear rolls down your cheek, and you talk to God, and don't, no, nobody knows you even do it. You're in a place today where you're accepted and you're loved, not judged because of your past, because everybody in this room has a past. But so many of them have the, the pleasure of being able to tell you their past has been covered by the blood of Jesus. God took their sins and he threw them into the sea of forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. You can have that same kind of peace in your heart by reaching out and taking hold of the free gift, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He made this thing perfectly and he stepped back and said it was very good. But sin entered in and we fell but Jesus has given us a way out. He's redeemed us. He's bought us back. He's paid for it with his blood. This morning, very simply, is just saying, Jesus, save me. Come into my heart. He was your substitute. He was mine. He hung on the cross and he paid the penalty. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're at the line of faith this morning, you're ready to cross it. Raising your hand does not make it happen, but it just says, Pastor, please pray for me. I'm at that place right now. Anybody in the room who'd like to say, Pastor, pray for me, would you slip up your hand? I'm not going to embarrass you. Thank you. I see that one and another one. Anybody else? Anyone over here? All right. I've seen several. Pray with me right now, those of you that lifted your hands. Saints, pray with us. Father, forgive my sin. Make this your prayer, those of you who raised your hands. Come into my heart, Jesus. I repent, I turn from my past, and I turn to you, God. I run to you. I'm reaching for you in faith right now. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Forgive my sin. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, that your word says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. Lord, for the Brothers and sisters, in the sound of my voice, that know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Every head still bowed, every eye still closed with me right now. You know that if you were to pass from this life, you'd be in the presence of God. But something hit you this morning in that restoration part about you have a part to play. There's a call of God on your life. Some of you are sitting here in this room with dreams that have never yet been fulfilled. And you laid them down thinking they were dead. God's coming this morning to blow his breath of life into them and resurrect them. And to say, I put those desires in your heart. And I mean for you to walk them out. Great things. Mind-boggling things. Those literally that other people would laugh at except for your very best friends who believe in you and see the hand of the Lord on your life. Some things in this room this morning, whatever they are, if you've sensed God brooding over that by His Spirit and you've heard the word of light come into that to awaken it, would you slip your hand up this morning? I want to pray for you. God's calling some of you to understand you have a part to play in this thing called restoration. Yes, the hands that went up. Thank you. Father, in Jesus' name, go before, be with these. As they seek you like silver, as they search for you like hidden treasure, give the wisdom of God so that they can walk into the uniqueness of the calling, the gifting that you have given to them to be the business person, the teacher, the nurse, the doctor, the lawyer, or the, the mechanic, the craftsman, the builder. All of these different things that we do, Father, that we do it to your glory and we do it to advance your kingdom with a spirit of excellence. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said.
Put your hands together and give the Lord praise this morning. Come on, somebody.